Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. SCP-6500. Inevitable. Part 4. Four separate stories all with disparate characters, locations, and themes, but all connected with the unifying thread of individuals desperately trying to stop the end of magic. In the path of the warrior, a woman raged across multiple realms in both a quest to find a sword and to find herself. In the path of the mage, a thaumaturge wife and husband traveled across the globe to multiple nexuses of magical energy in search of the broken fragments of an artifact of unimaginable power, nearly losing themselves in the process. In the path of the cleric, an aging Buddhist monk battled with a number of deadly yokai, eventually learning from a helpful foundation agent that his own staff was the source of his incredible power. That brings us to the final path, the path of the thief. The Path of the Thief involves the quest for an artifact known as the Molur Foki, a relic whose essence is intertwined with universal entropy, rot, and degradation. Controlling the object allows for dominion over all forces associated with decay, including SCP-6500. The Path of the Thief is titled Something to Nothing, and begins with an individual named Tony Marquez, looking at the insides of SCP-106, The Old Man. His insides are not what you might expect, however, and Tony felt a stunning cold looking through the human-shaped window in the world and at the velvety black of space beyond. The space was interrupted at its center by the immense stone structure of the temple, either floating or drifting, which evoked an even deeper cold that settled in a dismal corner of Tony's heart. The hole in the world that the old man had left behind was splayed out, with its head tilted back, as if the old man had spent his final moments looking up and asking forgiveness from God. Tony knows better than that, however, and he isn't upset to see him gone. He says to a nearby doctor that that's a nice send-off, for the old femur breaker, but he refuses to take his eyes off of the temple. Someone grabs his shoulder and turns him around, beginning to fit a transmitter into a pocket on the front of his combat vest. He asks the man if the doctor, Dr. Logan Archeo, is going to be his guardian angel on the other end of the line again. The man merely blinks a couple of times and says that he doesn't know before walking away. Tony ponders that no one ever knows how to talk to a D-class, and they should have classes about that, although that class might actually exist, with it simply ending after answering the question with, don't. Tony is a D-class, D-11424, and has actually survived a number of anomalous scenarios before. This time, he's been sent into this hole in space to check out that temple, 
whatever or wherever exactly it is. Logan turns out to be quite personable, though, and is glad to work with Tony again. They share a light laugh together, one you might share over the water cooler on break, except this one was right next to the wormhole remains of a vengeful, fetid thing. The two pause to look into the hole, feeling as if they were already falling, even though they were merely standing at its edge. With that sense of gravity came an uncomfortable presence of the planet, as if one could imagine that they could feel the very spin of the Earth, tempted as it was to stop all of a sudden and send them flying. They each shake their heads and turn back towards a large group of people in the room, double-checking data, testing instruments, frantically writing into notepads, looking and talking with one another. Logan tells Tony that they don't have much time for preamble or prologue, and he'll fill him in as he drifts over to the temple. Logan rushes off to get him an earpiece as other individuals finish preparing him, checking his backpack, rations, knife, and gun. They then tell him that it's time for him to get into his spacesuit, but he informs them that he can actually breathe in space, ever since some prior situation with another anomaly. He says that an oxygen tank is heavy, and he doesn't need it, so forget it. Some people check with some other people to confirm, and then they tie a tank to him anyways. Slowly but surely, everyone begins to filter out of the chamber, until finally Tony is alone, with nearly double his own weight on his back, facing down the temple. Logan comes in over his earpiece, calling him by his official D-class designation, since higher-ups were listening in. Logan says that it's even a bit daunting from where he's sitting, if Tony can believe it, and Tony cracks a smile at Logan's familiarity with him. They didn't used to talk to him like that, but somehow he managed to work up a rapport in the cold, clinical world of the Foundation. Tony definitely believes him, though, as he stands at the edge of the hole. Logan tells him to enter when ready, simply spacewalking over to the thing. Tony takes a deep breath, stepped right up to it, and just walked through. Gravity fell out from under him, and Tony finds himself floating in the warped familiarity that was space. Stars spread out around him forever and in all directions, and when he turns, he sees the other side of SCP-106. He's surprised that he could even fit through it, as it isn't any taller than he is, and he's wearing the whole spacesuit. He shakes his head and activates his manned maneuvering unit, which is smaller than the versions NASA uses thanks to the Foundation being ahead of the curve. He begins moving towards the temple, with Logan estimating it to be around a 20-minute trip. Tony decides to take the time to ask Logan some questions, starting with what exactly killed the old man. Expectedly, though, Logan says that it's classified, and remains silent entirely when Tony asks if he just turned into that hole afterwards. He then asks him if this place is what he thinks it is, the place where people got sent when the geezer got them. Before answering, Logan comments on Tony's wide vocabulary for old men, with Tony responding that he has a wide vocabulary of insults. Logan says that he's an old man, and Tony simply responds that them's the breaks, causing both men to chuckle. 
Logan's glad to see that Tony isn't daunted by the situation, and answers his question by saying that they don't know, but probably. They think it's made of bricks, and it looks about like what was described to them. Tony is actually in locatable space currently, not a pocket dimension, although Logan doesn't bother to go ask somebody where exactly he is, as it doesn't matter to Tony. Tony then asks what exactly is he supposed to be doing out here, causing Logan to laugh out loud and tell him that it's as basic as you can get, reconnaissance, as they don't really know what's in there. Tony looks at the temple again, pondering that it felt like a heart, and that through some invisible, intangible means, he could tell that there was something rooting it to this spot in space. He could also feel in some undefinable way that there was blood, old and dried, staining the void around it, like the mummified remains of a murdered king. He asks Logan if that's why they didn't send him with a live camera feed, due to fear of cognito hazards, and Logan agrees, telling him that they can retrieve cleared visuals from his memories once he gets out. That's also why Tony took a dose of Nestix this morning, to help make sure that he remembers everything. The word memories triggers something in Tony, evoking something in his mind, and he looks around at the stars. He says that he doesn't remember much of his life before the Foundation, either due to the Foundation intentionally wiping his memories, or just a side effect of coming into contact with so many anomalies. He's always wanted to be a diver, though, and there's a moment from when he was young that he always thinks on when he says that. Logan cuts him off, however, telling him that he's already heard this story before from him, so Tony just skips ahead to the relevant part, calling Logan a spoil sport. He just says that it was at night and it was the fullest sky of stars he'd ever seen, asking if Logan is happy he killed all the lead-up. Tony curses under his breath and continues by saying that when he was first put into space, he thought that it might be like swimming, but it's not. When swimming, you still have weight, and there's stuff all around you, while out here you're truly weightless, and there's nothing. Logan's not exactly sure how to respond to that, so they move on. The temple looms closer, but every time Tony looks at it, it weighs on his chest, and he has to look away. He asks Logan if there's a plan of attack, but there isn't. He's just supposed to get in and explore until they pull him out when they feel like they have enough info. Tony says that this will be when he dies, and despite Logan's assurances otherwise, he's sure that he's going to die in there. He's not scared of it, however, as he's died before. It's frightening in the moment, and oftentimes very painful, but there's no such thing as a career D-class who hasn't died before. He figures he was one of the first D-Class to receive such a treatment, although he doesn't know the specifics. He feels a great deal of pride with it, though, that he is a D-Class, sure, but also an exploration specialist. He fashions himself something of a star-subhuman prisoner, and he's pretty sure that Logan thought of him the same way. He's interrupted by nearly colliding full force with a wall before swerving upward, telling Logan that it was just a false alarm. He's around a hundred feet now from the temple, and could make out an organic tone to the bricks, 
with vines of the same color twisting through every crack and crevice. Some of the longer, thicker vines were even hanging down off of it, reminding him of the old Tarzan movies. The architecture itself is stark, though, with not a hint of embellishment or artistry to the red stone bricks which created miles of flat, featureless wall. Only occasionally did he see a window, or maybe a balcony or some other outcropping that looked purely utilitarian. A thought occurred to him, and he asks Logan if the old man was a minotaur, since he hunted people through an ever-changing labyrinth. Logan guesses that's true, but if Tony's had that thought, then so has the research team. Tony tells him to pass it along to them just in case, and then asks where should he enter the temple. Since they don't have any sort of map whatsoever for the place, he's told to enter anywhere, and decides to enter at a spot where several fancy arches acting like windows lead into a long, tall hallway. Tony begins verbally narrating everything he's seen, explaining that the place is huge, comparing it to one of those old European cathedrals with brickwork that feels older than history. He says that he gets why places like this are made this way, as it makes you feel like there's got to be something bigger out there. When he's here, he feels like he can sense God. Logan paused, and then asked if Tony thinks that that's a mimetic effect. Tony says no, as he feels this way every time he's in a cathedral, and this reminded him of one. He continues down the hallway, with the only light coming from his flashlight, and even then it seemed dim, as if the darkness was fighting against him. He comments on the red vines everywhere, asking Logan if he should try touching them. Logan consults with other researchers in the room before telling him that he probably shouldn't, as anything living in places like this is potentially dangerous. Tony passes through another large arch, which led into a windowless room. He found the floor drop out from under him, and his light didn't seem to reach anything visible. He tells Logan that he's now floating in nearly pitch blackness, and asks what weaponry is at his disposal. The answer is, of course, just his knife and gun, which doesn't please Tony too much, calling them weapons of the couldn't-hurt-an-anomalous-fly variety. He continues progressing forward, his flashlight occasionally catching a glimpse of some red bricks, which he uses to propel himself forward. He eventually hits another wall, and another archway, this time leading into a tight hallway. As he pushes himself along through the corridor, he remarks to Logan that the bricks have some give, and they shouldn't, suggesting that this whole place might be organic. He reaches a sharp turn where the hallway loses some of its hard corners and instead becomes more tube-like. He asks Logan about the fact that this place used to have gravity when 106 sent people here, but Logan says that they're not sure what happened to it. It's possible that 106 had reality-bending powers that only worked here, and created gravity so that people could actually run from him. Tony is now progressing upwards through this tube, until he comes across what looks like a blockage of red vines 
tangled into one another. He asks Logan for permission to cut the vines away, but this is denied, and he's told to go back the way he came. Instead, Tony decides to take a closer look at the vines, noticing that they have old, withered leaves on them. The leaves look bumpy, mottled with brighter, redder spots, and thicker than any leaf he'd ever seen, with rounded edges. He reaches out and touches one, causing nothing to happen to him, but the leaf seems to part at its seams as he presses into it, revealing a brighter, more vibrant red, which seems to begin to ooze out. He tells Logan that he has a theory, and yanks the leaf off of the vine, causing oily brown liquid to pool out from where the stem was, like a bleeding wound. Tony suddenly becomes disoriented as the walls start to shake around him. He places a hand against a wall, and the vibrations shake through his suit, his arms, and his bones. He says to Logan that it sounds like something massive is coughing, and admits to him that he pulled a leaf from the vines. Logan yells at him, but Tony just says that they were the only interesting thing in this place, so what did they expect? Tony's head is then suddenly pushed into a wall, and he turns and waves his flashlight around to see what hit him. His first thought was that the vines had suddenly become animate and smacked him, but they were still just sitting there. Looking back down the tube only showed inky blackness, so he tells Logan that something pushed him into a wall, but he doesn't see anything. At that moment, however, he stands up, as gravity just kicked back on. This is a bit of a problem right now, as he's at the top of this tube, so he's either going to have to start climbing back down, or cut through the vines above him. After some more conferring, Logan comes back and tells him to go up, which Tony says is good, because he was going to do that anyways. He hooks his knife into the first vine, slicing it and causing more of the oily substance to come spilling out. The walls begin to shake again, throwing him off his balance. He begins to slash through the vines, angry that he was having to use a pocket knife as a machete, and more and more of the substance comes onto him and the floor. The substance, combined with the shaking and his panic, was starting to get to Tony, so Logan chimes in to calm him down and tell him that he has no reason to believe anything is hot on his tail. Tony knows that he woke something up though, and he doesn't like being at a dead end when something is groggy and irritable. He began to more methodically saw away at the vines, but could feel the vibrations from the walls carrying that same noise of wet, sick coughing. Eventually, he made his way through, having to wipe the blood off of his helmet to see, but the smears left behind were so thick that he couldn't see more than a foot in front of him. He tells Logan about it, also having to now inform him that the vines have been leaking out this weird blood but the coughing sound has stopped. There's some muffled mumbling in the background, and Logan tells him that this was an unforeseen possibility. They really didn't give him anything to wipe his visor, except for maybe a plastic tarp. 
He tries removing his backpack to look through it for the tarp, but between his impaired vision and his thick gloves not allowing him to feel anything, he can't find it. He tells Logan that he has a different idea, however, and smashes the front of his helmet against the wall, shattering the glass. The glass sprayed into his face, leaving more than a few uncomfortable shallow cuts, but he could see now, as he didn't need to breathe in space. What he didn't think about, however, before doing that, was that there was now no atmosphere to transfer the sound of his voice, so he couldn't respond to Logan anymore. He could still hear Logan, though, who heard the crash and was asking if he's okay. He racked his brain for a moment before realizing that he could tap the microphone directly with his hand, making a tapping sound. While it would be ideal if he had knowledge of Morse code, the best they can do now is two taps for yes, one tap for no, three taps for maybe. As an additional problem, although he didn't need to breathe or worry about decompression, he wasn't entirely immune to the cold, and it was nearly unbearable. The movements of his face became stiff, but he continued onward, sometimes checking over his shoulder to make sure nothing was following him. Soon enough, he comes across a pit at a dead end. He hit his head against the wall several times in frustration, before deciding that he better just jump in. As a second thought, though, he decides he'd rather climb down, so he begins undressing out of the heavy spacesuit. He puts the transmitter back on, with Logan asking him if he's okay. He taps twice on the microphone, grabs some food bars out of the backpack, and looks down at the pit. He'll have to keep his flashlight in his mouth, but since there's no air, the light doesn't diffuse, so he'll be mostly blind. He'll also be unable to communicate, as his hands will be occupied. It's clear that he's not too thrilled about doing this, but he begins to lower himself down into the pit. He soon finds that his feet are forceful enough to slide in between the bricks in the wall, as if they separated just for his being there, so at least it was going to be easy. He waited there for some time, taking some fake deep breaths to try and calm down, but eventually he begins to descend. The going was slow, as although he was strong and had been on plenty of exploration missions, he wasn't a climber. Thankfully, there was nothing else to pay attention to, with no noise aside from the sliding of bricks when he touched them, and nothing in sight except a red splotch from the flashlight. A minute or so went by, down and down and down, and he began to wonder if the pit was curving outwards. He realized that his body was at an angle, with his footholds further into the wall than his handholds, and if this continued to curve, he would soon be unable to cling to it. Logan was trying to reach him, so Tony took his left hand out of the wall and felt himself swing ever so slightly to his right, which made his chest tighten. He tapped the microphone twice, so Logan continued telling him that they might have a way to forcibly extract him, but if he's finding interesting things, it might be better for him to stay instead of them having to wait a week to try this operation again. 
He reaches up again to tap the microphone, but the quick movement and swinging of his arm had knocked the microphone off of his shoulder. It was now dangling from its wire over the void below him, but from this position he couldn't see how far the ground was from him, if there was even any there at all. He could still hear Logan trying to communicate with him, and he tried to reach his free arm to grab the wire, but he couldn't grip it. He felt like he might have had it when his right hand started to slip from its handhold. His heart felt like it was beating out of his chest, so he shoves his left hand back into the wall. A cold sweat is pouring down his head, and he could hear Logan telling others that he can't reach him anymore. Tony remembers that if he does die, he'll just wake up again, with the only real variable being how painful the death is. He forces himself to eventually let go from the wall, as he didn't have much of a choice anyways. He was falling now, or at least assumed he was, as the lack of air and sight gave him no point of reference. He started to try and twist mid-fall to grab the microphone, but realized that he was now losing his sense of direction, and he could fall on his head. Instead, he landed on his hip, and felt something break, painfully. He hears Logan in his ear saying that that sounded bad, and asks if he's there. He also hears a gurgling, inconsistent flow underneath him, and turns the flashlight towards the ground. He's laying on a massive tangle of vines, which turns out to be a large ball of them twisted together and suspended in the middle of a vast chamber, along with many other similar balls. He's now on top of one of them, with a broken hip. He chuckles a soundless chuckle to himself, and ponders that this was going to be a hilarious story once he gets out. He did everything wrong, hurt himself badly, didn't learn anything, and wasted time and resources. Logan tells him that they're just going to go through with the extraction, as it seems like things went very poorly, and they aren't comfortable with the mission continuing while they have no idea what's going on. He tells him to stay put for 30 minutes, which Tony can certainly do. His back felt cold and wet, and he assumes the wet part is from breaking some of the vines upon impact, but wonders about the cold. He takes the flashlight and looks at some of the liquid, finding it to be cold, brown, and thin, the consistency closer to muddy water than blood. He lays there, still, and thinks about how cold space is. He feels like he should have remembered that fact, as it seems like there was so much he was supposed to remember, like diving in the bay or his first exploration as a D-class. He doesn't know why he's forgetting more and more, as he remembered that he was capable of surviving in space, but he hadn't remembered how cold it was. He then realizes that the liquid is further up on his body than before, as he is definitely sinking into the vines. He tries to put himself on his elbows to get at least his upper body out, but the pressure forces his arms into the ball, and he feels the vines tighten around him. The liquid proceeds to swallow the flashlight, 
now letting off only a dim brown glow underneath, and then it begins to creep up to his chest. He tries to yank his arm out from under the veins, but the motion causes such a sharp pain in his hip that he slams back into a line position, leaving part of his face under the liquid. He didn't need to breathe, but was doing so instinctually until he inhales a mouthful of the brown blood, making him cough, hack, wheeze, and thrash. This only exacerbated the pain in his hip, however, and he was no closer to getting unstuck as the liquid continues to rise. It began to burn in his nose, making him gasp for an air that didn't exist, flop like a fish, and splash the liquid around, until eventually he's completely submerged. Ironically, he saw more underneath than he had before, with the flashlight bouncing around in the liquid. He's surrounded by a rotting, fecal brown, which tastes like iron and felt like nothing he had felt before. Some parts of it were thicker than others, as if the liquid folded in on itself. He tried to hold his breath for as long as he could, as even though he didn't require oxygen and he would survive this regardless, his lungs still rejected the liquid as if he were drowning. He twisted and writhed while floating in the liquid, until the vines eventually twisted off of his arm. He grabbed the flashlight and immediately began swimming upwards, but he couldn't tell if he was making progress. Everything looked the same, but he continued on, fighting his natural instinct to breathe, as he didn't need to. Progress was slow, and it seemed that the pool was so much deeper than it actually was. Finally, he bumps into something, as the hole he had entered through had been closed up by the vines. He tries to find his knife, but realizes that his backpack is no longer with him, either still on top or floating somewhere inside of the ball. He decides to just try plunging his arm into the veins, pushing through the tangled mass to figure out how thick it is. He's still holding his breath, and has to really fight his impulses to not take a breath while exerting himself. His arm is up to the elbow in the veins, and he makes it through, feeling the stunning cold from the vacuum of space on the other side. But he looks at his bicep and recoils as the skin is rotting. It looks like wet, torn paper, drifting in the stagnant brown liquid, revealing a cloudy, cottony outpouring of fat and pus and blood from underneath. He involuntarily gasps, and his left hand lets go of the flashlight, which gently drifts away. His vision plunges into darkness, and without having to look at his own desiccated body, he calms himself down. He knows he's dying, as he's being digested by this fluid, which must have a numbing agent contained in it. This explains why he didn't feel himself sinking in it, or didn't feel it eating his arm, and why his lungs don't hurt now that he's breathing it in. In his mind, this is relieving, as the uncertainty is gone, and this thing killing him was kind enough to make it painless. He lets himself breathe it in, 
with his arm up to the elbow in veins while being digested, and thought that this is probably a typical way for a D-class to go. He simply floated there, barely feeling anything in the darkness, with only the sound of sloshing liquid and his own heartbeat. That was soon gone as well, as he realized his ears must have been digested now, and he thought that this is the most conscious he's ever been, while completely and utterly dead. And then there was nothing, a mere pinprick of nothing, as wide as the universe, and the universe was small. A single dimension, a single point, containing all that ever was and will be, of nothing and the possibilities therein, which in turn exploded into light, into matter, cascading, expanding, fighting against the point, becoming lines, and then shapes, and then prisms, dimensions upon dimensions, creating and birthing and being, and suddenly there were stars, and there were planets, and there were solids and liquids and gases and plasma, filling the universe edge to edge, and the universe was big. It was huge, it was massive, and it was dark. Tony floated in viscous void, some parts thicker than others, like space folded in on itself, if such a thing were at all possible. He tried to scream, to call out, but all that came out of him were bubbles, bubbles of cosmos that floated out of him and popped into nebula and debris. All he could do was watch, watch as the something created patterns, patterns too vast to comprehend and too small to even notice. Spiraling, swirling galaxies made of spiraling, swirling solar systems, made of spiraling, swirling moons, made of spiraling, swirling life. Earth. Tony stopped his shouting as he began to recognize the ball of rock and water. His consciousness, out of all the universe, honing in on something familiar, this germ, this speck of importance he'd identified, to sip its primordial soup. Time nearly stopped, so he could gaze upon its opulence, the young thing, watching its moon be made, watching asteroids peck its cheeks. But it didn't stop. A whirlwind of history passed Tony by, He saw it all. He saw the ice ages. He saw the dinosaurs come and go. He saw spiders first develop. His scatterbrain felt it out of order, because on such a time scale, really, doesn't everything happen at once? What separated the Tuesdays from the Sundays, Decembers from Septembers, years from decades, from centuries, from millennia, one eclipse from the next? one species from its neighbor, Narmer from Jesus from Sakamoto, gods from mortals, Tony from anything. And so, like an apple, Earth was gone. All of a sudden, gone. Humanity, gone. Tony felt his own atoms lose integrity, felt dark matter itself decay. From nothing to ancestors to progeny, to nothing, 
Lights went out. The universe shrunk back into a pinprick from something to nothing. The way of everything. Back at the Foundation facility, Logan tries telling Tony that their remote termination wasn't working, but of course he got no response. It seems that a small crowd of doctors, researchers, and supervisors had tried performing a ritual featuring candles and circles and all kind of sigils. Logan tells the others that Tony's communicator is still available, but they're not getting anything, so he might be dead. Someone else chimes in, saying that the ritual should still be capable of summoning a dead body, so something else must be interfering. Logan asks what their other options are, and they say that this excursion proved that the place is too dangerous to send an MTF into, so they'll need another reconnaissance mission. Logan replies that this place might be too dangerous for a reconnaissance mission, but they ask if he remembers what happened to the drones they sent in. Apparently, the temple responded to the presence of inorganic matter, but Logan suggests that maybe it also responds to organic matter, just differently. He then asks why they have to keep Tony in the dark, but he's told to not ask stupid questions so he says to wake up another one so they can send him through in a few hours. The crowd disperses, and Logan lets out a long, overdone sigh, twice, before putting the microphone back on. He speaks into it, saying that he knows Tony is probably dead, but being on the other side of this line sucks too. Tony could still hear Logan's voice, however, as he continued by saying that they're on a time crunch, and had hoped that they could make some progress today. He finishes by telling Tony that on the off chance he's alive, that sucks too, before signing off. Tony shrugs what little remains of his shoulders, and cracks a cheekless smile that reaches from ear to ear. He closes his moldering fingers around the speaker, and squeezes before opening them again, with what remained of his wet skin sticking and stretching before snapping. The speaker was gone, completely oxidized and crumbled away. He drops the remains to the ground, and then steps on the microphone and transmitter. When he pulls his foot away, an acid had eroded them completely, He takes a deep breath of nothing, and apologizes, although there's no air here, and even if there was, his throat was completely open in the front. In spite of this, something heard him, and Tony spoke to the darkness around him, asking who it is. The yawning darkness began to open in response, and the red bricks underneath Tony began to part and disintegrate leaving him floating in the dark. Then he was pulled by some unseen force. Tony isn't afraid, however, and as the darkness opens up, he begins to see an entity, at first just a silhouette rising from the blackness, like a swimmer breaching the surface. The entity was pulling away from the blackness, like a trapped elephant struggling through tar. 
Eventually, the darkness poured off of it, enough for Tony to get a clear image, seeing that its carapace was almost human, unsettlingly close. It looked like a skull, layered with skin, yet without the aid of muscles, layered with tumorous growths and small punctures where pus, blood, and that fecal brown fluid poured out. Its eye sockets were not empty, but they were not filled with eyes. They seemed to cry mulch and dirt, like dug-up graves spilling out, and behind that earth laid that same Stygian darkness. Tony thought that he could make out something there, something beyond the known universe, that within laid a decay so strong it turned matter not simply into dirt, but into nothing. The entity then spoke, its voice hissing and bubbling and popping like a corpse's gases forcing their way through bloated flesh. It says that it is rot, to which Tony responds that that answers surprisingly little. It continues, though, saying that it is decay. It is that which breaks and tears asunder. It is the slow return of everything to nothing. It is fester, wither, entropy, death, and it is dying. Tony nodded and says that that makes more sense, to which the entity then asks who he is. Tony says that honestly, he's just some guy who walked in here, and his name is Tony Marquez. The entity then replies that he is not Tony Marquez. He only thinks he is. Tony tells it to cut the cryptic BS and explain itself. The entity says that the real Tony Marquez died in a diving accident in Jacob's well, and he bears Tony's genes, but he is not him. It worked on Tony's flesh over a century ago, and his eyes fed the fish before his body was recovered. What remains of Tony has diffused into Earth, and he is not him. Tony asks the entity why it's telling him this, to which the entity responds that it sees great potential in him, potential to rot. From behind the entity rose figures in the dark, silently floating forward, and in each one he saw the temple. Each were the remains of SCP-106, but there were many of them, each one being a gateway filled with stars and stunning cold that led to this temple of rot that pumped blood into nothingness. The entity says that its acolytes are fulfilling their final purpose. They are decaying beyond the point of use. In their highest of honors, they have come here to die. Tony asks why they are dying, but the entity only coughs, a sick, wet cough, eventually saying that they are all dying. Tony asks what it means, and why it spared him. The entity says that once Tony knew his fate, he became one with it. He did not fight the inevitable, but he respected the entity's creation with his own destruction. For that, it rewarded him with truth, and he accepted it. 
the fate of everything, the return to nothing. For that it saw great potential, and within him it sees death, an eternal cycle of life and decay. It sees his own memories failing him, and his soul wearing down with time. All Tony knows is to die and be reborn and die again, and for that it extends an offer, to take the entity's place, because it is dying. The darkness then split all at once, and from beneath it rose the veins, miles and miles of them tangled up. Some of them burst and spilled liquid, some jumped around like live wires, some collapsed, some were clogged, and all of them wound into a humanoid mass that made up the body of the entity, whose putrescent head floated, disconnected from the torso and appendages. It says that it once believed it would survive to see the end of all things, the return to nothing which it seeks. It believed that it would bring this to fruition itself, but it seems that it will not live to see such a fate. It sees a shift in reality, a rot faster than it could imagine. Entropy is accelerating at a rate it had not thought possible, but it calls it beautiful, saying that it and its acolytes are proud to be victim to such power. A hand made of the twisted vines plunges itself into the tangled mess of the entity's chest and pulls out, bringing with it an outpouring of that oily brown fluid, like a dam coming apart. It spewed down the entity's chest and coated its waist and legs. The hand then extended towards Tony, and it seemed to shrink down to a normal human size, with a heart in its palm. The spilling veins began to lose their bright red hue, turning brown, and it tells Tony to take it. Tony extended what was left of his own hand, and the entity gently placed the beating heart into it, with as much care as the exchange of a baby animal. It tells him that with every beat of its heart, the universe moves closer towards the zenith of its demise. It may die, but it fears what may happen in its absence. With its essence in another's hand, it will not fade so easily. Tony asks how it can possibly die, and what can possibly kill something so powerful. The entity's body begins to collapse, its veins wrinkling and squirming as its tumorous skin begins to melt away. It says that it is decay and death, and if it were not mortal, it would be false. Tony asks what he is supposed to do with this and what's going to happen. The entity's skull begins to crack and turn into dust and dirt, while the outlines of its disciples bled space and stars into the darkness, filling the void with a stunning cold that bit at Tony's exposed entrails. The entity fell into itself, imploding like a corpse being thrown into a wormhole grave, buried by an unseen undertaker with heaps of cosmos and dark matter. And then Tony felt a stabbing pain in his chest, looking down to see the heart's extended artery stabbing into his open chest cavity, 
removing his own moldy heart like a ruptured appendix. Tony screamed as rot made its way towards the center of his being, but there was no longer anyone there to hear him. Back at the Foundation facility, Logan curses under his breath before grabbing his radio and yelling at Site Command to initiate the Eki Protocol. Before they even confirmed the order though, Logan was already sprinting for the exit as the others in the room began to notice what he had noticed in the camera feed. The stairs were flooded with people going about their business when the speakers came on telling everyone that the Eki Protocol has started and they should all retreat and take shelter. Orange lighting flicked on across the facility, and there was mild chaos as people tried to push past each other before everyone continued in an orderly fashion. Guards were heading towards the nearest armory to arm themselves appropriately, while Logan headed straight towards SCP-106's containment chamber, where Tony had first gone through the opening towards the temple. The traffic of the crowd thinned out the closer he got to the room, and the further he got from safety, with what people remained mostly consisting of men with guns. A squad leader approached him and asked him his purpose here, to which Logan tells him that force being effective is dubious, but it may listen to him. After showing the man his clearance, he says that Logan is clear to follow, but he should stay out of the way. The group of six operatives moved forward down the hallway as Logan followed, hoping that he would get a raise for this. They reached the door leading to the stairs down to the actual chamber, and it was already open, despite them being the first group to arrive. The group begins descending the stairs, but Logan tells them that he wants to go in first to try and talk it down. The squad leader agreed without even trying to talk him out of walking into the chamber unarmed and unprotected. Soon they arrive in the actual containment chamber, a huge space like an airplane hangar, with a single cubic room suspended at its center. The majority of the chamber's defenses were now inert, as the magical protections they had been utilizing were useless thanks to SCP-6500. Thankfully, at the same time they had degraded, so had SCP-106. The task force rounded the cube on the surrounding catwalks, pointing their guns at the room like it could erupt at any second. Logan felt his chest tighten as they came up to the door leading into the cube, plastered with the strongest magic they could come up with, now useless. Logan tells the squad leader that he has this, and to only come in if it attacks, or if he says so. The leader was clearly bothered that his authority was being questioned, but agrees. Logan admits to himself that it would have been extremely relieving had the man grabbed him by the collar and told him to go home, but it looks like he actually has to go do the sensible thing. He opened the first door and walked past burnt herbs, candles, strings of crystals, a rotten horse head on a stake, and other occult paraphernalia, before taking a deep breath and opening the second door. He puts on a smile like nothing's wrong and greets Tony, saying that he hopes he wasn't waiting long. It stares at Logan, 
although there are no eyes. So Logan continues, saying that it seems Tony didn't come back unaltered, but that's happened before, and he's sure that they can fix him back up. It then says that it is not Tony. So Logan asks, to whom does he owe the pleasure? It begins to cough as viscous brown liquid spills out from mouths both seen and unseen. More and more of its body and associated fluids begin pouring out of the hole left behind by SCP-106, now filling nearly a quarter of the chamber. It says for Logan to tell it who it is, and Logan could recognize the voice as having Tony's intonations, dry humor, and pacing of speech, but it was bubbling and hissing. It was also accusing, so Logan says that he doesn't know what it means. It continues, asking Logan who it is. Maybe it's D-11424, or is there a caveat there? When this all gets written up, maybe he'll be D-11424-2, or dash 3, but really that's way too low, as they've been at this a long time, so maybe it's dash 110, or dash 133. That's closer to what it remembers, or does its memory even matter? It slithers closer to Logan, so Logan asks if this is about the clones thing. As far as he could tell, this may have surprised it, so he tries to capitalize on that by continuing. He says that he's not here to argue philosophy with him, and that they have plenty of backups of Tony available at all times. When he dies, he comes back in a new one instead of them remaking him and teleporting him back through magic. They lied because they found that makes him more complacent, but his memories aren't a lie. They can harvest memories from the dead and place them into a new body, adding on to his collected experience. They stack up on one another, and in the reports, he's just D-11424, Tony Marquez. The entity retreats into itself, mass folding in on mass, and it tells Logan that he's wrong, as they've taken things from it. Tony Marquez died in a diving accident. Logan has no idea where he learned that from, but says that Tony has died many times. The entity says that it means the original Tony, who wasn't a D-Class, the one who stood a chance. He thought that he was in prison after committing a felony, but he can't even remember what he did or didn't do, as they took that from him along with his life. Logan yells back that he was dead, and continues by explaining that that's how they make D-Class now. Tony was a guinea pig, and Logan's at the head of the new program. Some of the other guinea pigs responded poorly to the idea that they weren't fully themselves, so that's why they kept it from him for so long, as they knew this response would happen. That doesn't mean he's any less real to Logan, as he's known him for decades and does amazing work. The entity didn't move, and after some seconds, it begins to cough. Logan asks him what happened, and the front of the entity begins to move towards Logan, who has to continually reassure himself that 
this was still Tony he was talking to. Tony apologizes and says that he guesses he's kind of horrifying. Logan lets out a genuine chuckle and replies, a little bit, to which Tony laughs and says that they have some catching up to do. Logan feels the pressure in his chest dissipate and asks again how Tony ended up like this. Tony doesn't respond, only seeming to look out towards the opening of the chamber where a growing number of soldiers were pointing their rifles. He tells Logan that he doesn't want to die, and Logan lies to him that he's not going to die. The entity pulls back like a cobra about to strike, as the hissing gases coming out of it increase in intensity. It begins to apologize to Logan, but he dives behind the doorway and gives the command to fire. A spray of bullets flood the chamber, piercing through the entity's body as it screams and coughs. Its many mouths spew out an unholy mixture of bodily fluids, and it wails in pain as thick red veins burst from its heaping mass like the legs of a centipede. The veins pick up the mass off the ground and enhance its mobility as it tries to lunge towards Logan which only puts it back into the path of the bullets. It screams and curses at the soldiers, reminding Logan of Tony's wide vocabulary of insults. It then decides to go straight through the wall of the chamber, causing it to crack and fall apart, just like SCP-106 did. Logan hears more gunfire and men screaming as the entity roars that it is rot and decay that which breaks and tears asunder. Logan sprints out through the doorway, looking to see the entity latch onto the side of the cube before launching itself into a group of soldiers on the catwalk, swallowing them up into its mass. The non-stop hail of bullets continue to pound into the entity, causing bile to spill out onto the railings and catwalks and melting them in seconds. It shot out veins as thick as arms and latches onto nearby soldiers, either slamming them against walls, throwing them against the ground, or pulling them back into its mass. It continues to scream, however, and when it becomes clear that it couldn't take down all the soldiers, it escapes through a wall of the large chamber. The blaring sirens become more insistent, and the lights turn red, as a warning comes over the loudspeakers that Amida protocol has been initiated and all personnel should evacuate immediately. The Foundation is planning on activating the on-site nuclear warhead to contain this thing. Logan rushes over to a nearby soldier and takes his radio, telling Site Command to not arm the nuclear warhead, as that thing has the Molur Foki. Site Command agrees, and Logan heads back up the facility out of the chamber, soon running back into the entity. The wall bursts open, and a flailing mass of veins grabs several soldiers, swiftly killing them and tossing their bodies down the stairwell. When it fully emerges from the wall, Logan now sees that it had a face, which was simultaneously Tony's face, but not at all. It screams Logan's name in rage, at which point the remaining soldiers in the stairwell unleash a barrage of bullets, sending it back into the wall. 
They push past the dead and the dying, ascending the steps until they emerge into a hallway, pushing towards the exit stairs. The entity was elsewhere, and Logan could hear screams coming through corridors and gunfire all around him. They passed by black, rotted holes in the wall where it must have come through, but eventually they make it to the elevators, the only way out of the site. Logan and the soldiers cram in and hit the up button as the elevator begins ascending. The screams and gunfire fade from earshot, and Logan calms his breathing as they make it to the top. They walk through the long hallway until passing through the open archway out into the sun. They then saw, among the rocks and sand of the desert, a small army had gathered with guns pointed at the entrance and attack helicopters hovering in the air. Soldiers begin to escort him towards safety, but they're interrupted as gunfire erupts all around him, deafening him. The entity was trying to escape from the site, but it didn't stand a chance. It didn't even have a form anymore, just a mass of disconnected tendrils and body parts crawling forward, until it eventually stopped. The gunfire ceased, and the air became still. Logan eventually opens his eyes, seeing that all that remained of the entity was its outline, full of stars. He felt a stunning cold looking through the shapeless window in the world, and at the velvety black of space interrupted at its center by the stone structure of the temple. No amount of shivers could shake the cold that it evoked in Logan's heart, and he stood up. The air was clouded with dust and sweat and adrenaline. The death throes of a dying world were once again silenced, and at its base was a lacerated heart, beating blood into nothing. So ends the Path of the Thief. The debriefing report gives us a status update on the Molur Foki, the heart. It is resistant to the majority of time dilation effects, but they're looking to further lower its beats per minute via temporal methods. Destruction or complete cessation of the heart has been forbidden by the Council due to the unknown potential effects on natural and tropic phenomena. Slowing the heart rate of the artifact, however, has had a clear effect on the rate of SCP-6500's effects, with it neutralizing less anomalies and causing less magic to fail. On the flip side, though, reports of nausea, hallucinations, and dreams are all much higher among personnel working on the project, and the heart is producing vastly more corrosive fluids than before. It's also making a number more escapes each month. It managed to breach containment with the aid of a junior researcher who used a stolen security card to open the containment chamber. Afterwards, the junior researcher was brought in for interrogation, and it was discovered that they were functionally dead, with no memories of the original junior researcher, so it was neutralized. At another time, the heart managed to accelerate its heart rate by 200% for two hours before emergency thaumaturgic measures were taken against it, and it was discovered that it had been producing adrenaline instead of blood during that time. A corpse matching that of Logan was discovered in the containment chamber after the simultaneous failure of all audiovisual devices, 
with Logan himself being elsewhere, perfectly fine. He now dreams of the heart once every three days, and a snorkel covered in a thin layer of the heart's corrosive fluids was found in his office desk drawer. The report ends with a note from Logan in which he writes that the project has been a massive success, as SCP-6500's effects are being mitigated across the board, with less than half the expected cost of what was previously thought possible. He cannot thank his team enough, but the road ahead of them is long and as of yet uncertain. He's confident that they'll pull through. They have single-handedly postponed the death of magic by at least several years, and they are looking forward to postponing it further, wishing everyone godspeed. Unlike the other paths, this one doesn't seem so clearly optimistic and simple. This artifact doesn't seem to be as easily handled as the others, and its effects don't seem to be as total. Regardless, the four paths have been completed, so the only thing left is to continue into the SCP-6500 file and discover what exactly the Council is going to do about this situation. I have a feeling that it's not going to be completely cut and dry, as the fate of the world never is.